Hello again, everyone. How y'all doing? Good. Um, happy Mother's Day. For those of you who don't know me, yeah, let's give it up for the moms. Uh, and actually, before we start today, I, I wanted to um, address Mother's Day. Um, as I was thinking about, at, about moms, I love the quote by C.S. Lewis. And uh, he says, since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. And at first that doesn't seem to apply, but um, as we're gonna talk about a little bit later, what I found with God is that the more you enter into a relationship with God, the more he surprises you. And, um, and that generally the highest forms of courage go unnoticed and unrecognized. So at first, you know, you read about knights and courage and uh, you have this picture, this archetypal picture in your head and then you get older and uh, a light turns on, you realize, oh, it's been your mom the whole time. Um, that the sacrifices and the fury and the passion and the beauty and the delight and the selflessness um, of moms is really what C.S. Lewis was talking about the whole time. But I also want to address um, women in the room who are not moms, because I know days like this can be very difficult. Um, Sure, I'm sure there are many here who want to be moms and are not, whether um, because you're not married or uh, perhaps you once were, um, or perhaps there was a miscarriage, which is one of those topics that um, has been hushed up in the church and need not be. Um, this quote applies to you as well. And I just want you to know that we are with you, um, that we are present, that there's nothing I can say that won't sound a bit hollow, um, but that motherhood is not confined to biology. And I think we all know that. Um, and so we notice and we recognize your courage and your heroism as well. So will you pray with me? And then we'll get going today. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you surprise us. We thank you that you're a God who we couldn't have guessed. That you're a God who's full of joy. <laughs> and that you reveal yourself in the uh, most ir ironic twist of humor. We thank you for the women in our lives who model Christ-likeness who teach us about you. We thank you for Hope Brooklyn, Lord, for this community that you're growing. May we be formed fully into your image and no one else's. And we ask all these things, Jesus, in your crucified and resurrected name, amen. So if you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series called Questions. And the basic premise behind the idea of questions is we wanted to know what you guys are interested in. Um, none of these sermons were uh, chosen by me. They were all questions that the community texted in and whichever ones were most asked, whichever topics were asked most regularly, that's what we wrote a sermon on. Um, and three qualifiers before we get into this. Uh, first, many of these questions possess interscriptural tension. That is to say, um, that if, you, if there's a particular topic, a particular issue, and if you wanted to, you could find scriptures that would support your interpretation of the topic, 
and you could find scriptures that would support the other side of the topic. And we'll find that that's kind of true in today's uh, question. But what that means, that what I have to conclude is that since that's how our scripture has come to be, that perhaps the tension and the ambiguity um, is better for us than if we had a clear resolution. That I have to conclude that God intentionally left the ambiguity in uh, his scripture, perhaps to draw us into these types of conversations. Secondly, we have three pillars that guide Hope Brooklyn. These are like our defining characteristics. If you've been here for a while, you already know them front to back, and that's awesome. First, we are crowds and disciples. That's our way of saying that you don't have to be a Christian to be a part of our community, that wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Um, what that means though is that will determine where you are on the spectrum will determine how you hear the particular teaching. So know that, so do some introspection, find out where you are on this. Do you call Jesus Lord? Do you not? Are you not sure what you think about him? Because that will determine um, how these messages are bearing on your life or not. Secondly, we are a community of the story. Christianity for us is let a set of, less a set of propositions that we ascend to and more um, a story that we find ourselves within that captivates our hearts. And that's important because Augustine had a famous phrase. Uh, Augustine was one of the uh, church fathers in like the fourth century. Um, and he had this phrase where he goes, in essentials, meaning in the, in the details of the story, unity. But in non-essentials, in questions where there, are, where there is ambiguity, where there is tension, charity. That is to say that we can have differing theologies, we can have differing views, but underneath that all better be love. Love that's looking to sacrifice for the other. And that leads us to our third pillar, that we are a community that eats together face to face. There's room at the table for differing theologies. There's room at the table for disagreement. There's room at the table for conversation. And actually the proof that we are the community of the New Testament is if we disagree with one another and still end up at the table together, serving one another. Because Jesus said to his disciples that the world's gonna know you not by your theology, the world's gonna know you by your love. Because that's gonna be unlike anything else they see. So those are our pillars. And then the last qualifier is a quote from um, Stanley Hauerwas who says there's nothing more harmful than to answer a malformed question. And what that means is some of these questions, uh, as we know in our life, sometimes we ask questions, but we really don't mean that question. We, we're actually afraid to ask something else. And so in this series, I'm trying to look for the question beneath the question. And today what we're talking about um, is the question, essentially, how can you be a Christian and a feminist given the Bible's historical roots and patriarchy? How can you be a Christian and a feminist given the Bible's historical roots and patriarchy? A really appropriate day for it, no? Right, Mother's Day? Um, and, and one other qualifier before I get into this, just FYI, um, we have two, in our Hope Church Network, we have two um, women pastors and, and competent teachers. And I asked both of them to deliver this message today. And they were both out of town. And so then I asked Anna, I said, baby, do you wanna preach again? And she says, you're out of your mind. <laughs> and so it fell to me. I would ask for grace today. Um, 
I think it can be dangerous to speak about a perspective or a road that you've never walked yourself. Um, but the other three were unable to do it. So I'm going to try and be as honest as possible, with, which hopefully you know me by now to know that's always what I'm after. I'm gonna try and be as honest as possible with the text as I read it. Um, if I misspeak, if I misstep, I would ask for grace and that. So let's jump into feminism. Let's do it. How can you be a Christian and a feminist given the Bible's historical roots and patriarchy? Well, I have three answers, a short one, a medium one, and a longer one, all right? So let's start with the short one. The short answer to that question, I would say, is this. To use the Bible to justify violence, that is to say, to gain power over any group of people fundamentally misunderstands the gospel and the God who authors it. So a metaphor for this. Um, and this is another controversial topic. I don't mean it to be controversial. It's just the first thing I thought of as a metaphor. So I don't know if you were, my brothers and I, we were spanked as children. And my dad, he had a ruler that he used to, to spank us. Um, and he, he, he said he had a philosophy behind it. He didn't want to use his hand. He wanted to be a separation between his hand. But that philosophy was lost on me as a kid. I didn't care. <laughs> All right, ruler or hand, it didn't matter. <laughs> um, but let's assume that you grew up in a world where rulers were only used for spankings, right? Inevitably, you're gonna see rulers and you're gonna be filled with a sort of fear, right? A sort of trepidation, a sort of, oh no, who did something wrong, right? And then you discover that the ruler was actually developed not for spankings, but for measuring things to aid to the human society. And you're gonna be stunned and be like, what in the world? How did I never know that? In a sense, that's kind of what's going on. The gospel, the gospel story from Genesis to Revelation is fundamentally about liberating people from oppression. Israel out of Egypt, human nature out of sin. It is about liberation. But when it is used to commit violence against groups of people, it fundamentally misunderstands the story because the trajectory of the story, which culminates in Jesus, God made flesh and the church, when that is used to justify any forms of violence, physical, emotional, hierarchical, sexual, against any group, it misunderstands the God who authors this story, which means the church needs to look at our history and we need to own up to where we've gone wrong. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to look at such chapters like the Inquisition and crusades and give people grace but also recognize that we got it wrong and say we're sorry. We need to look at the African slave trade and the way that the many pockets of the church in America justified that and we need to say we got it wrong and we need to repent and say we're sorry. What you find in the church is that when the church starts assuming forms of cultural power, we misunderstand this story because violence that comes from abuses of power misunderstands the God who became powerless in order, powerless unto death in order to save his beloved world. So to understand this story rightly is to abdicate forms of power in all different ways in your life. When you read the story, you constantly see that Jesus and Paul um, 
And, and Moses and the prophets are, are calling their people to sacrifice themselves for others, to serve others, to forfeit their power, to serve. And the reason why I wanna start with this is because though I'm not sure, um, and this might be an unfeminist assumption of mine, I would guess, I would venture to guess that this question probably arose from a woman, though it definitely could be a man as well. Um, And it probably arose from someone who's been hurt by the church, who's been hurt from the way the church has used this story um, for coercive or coercive or uh, to justify violence in some sense. And I want to start this way because I basically just want to do a disclosure. To interpret this story rightly would not even require this question because you'd realize that God is a feminist. If by feminist you mean the classic definition that anyone who recognizes the full humanity and full equality of women and men. Now, obviously, feminism is a spectrum, of well, a spectrum as well of social legislation and all of that. But if you mean just the classic philosophical definition that anyone who recognizes the full humanity and full equality of women and men, sign God up. He's a feminist. All right? So that's the short answer. This story is not meant to do violence. It's meant to set free. Now, we need to define what we mean by freedom. It's not what we probably, and we've done that in a couple sermons before. It's not total autonomy to do whatever I want. That's not freedom. We need to define freedom. But it is not meant to oppress or to subjugate. That is not what this story does. That is not what this God is after. He's all about liberating us from bondage. That's what this story is. That's a short answer. Now, medium answer. How can you be a Christian and a feminist given the Bible's historical roots and patriarchy? Well, I would say this. The Bible, and by that I mean the Old and the New Testament, the Old Testament was written by Jews and it's written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written mostly by Jews as well, but it was written in Greek. Um, The Bible uh, contains stories and prophecies and histories over thousands of years. Judaism and Christianity really have perfected, uh, maybe I shouldn't say perfected, but they present the, the, the character type of the anti-hero. The anti-hero. If you look at the characters in the Bible, many of Judaism's and Christianity, with the obvious exception of Jesus, many of these characters, these heroes, are presented in sobering accounts, highlighting their deep flaws. So just a couple examples. Abraham. Abraham, who is... Um, the one who God called to create the people of Israel through him. He's heralded as a a righteous man, a faithful man. Abraham got so scared at certain points of his life that essentially he told his wife, hey, say you're my sister so they don't kill me. So he hid behind his wife and in a sense kind of pimped her out a little bit. Jacob, a couple generations later, Jacob was known as a liar and a deceiver, a crook. David, David is viewed as the paragon of of Israel's kingship. And there's a story of David um, where essentially he rapes Bathsheba. And that's an interesting story in and of itself because if you look at the, the Hebrew, the Hebrew verbs telling that story, the Hebrew verbs are very violent. They're verbs that are used in militaristic accounts as well. 
It's very clear that the Hebrew author wants you to know that this is not consensual. This is a king abusing his power and raping this woman. Now why that's interesting is because I dare say you might have heard sermons or it might be in your Bible where it doesn't call it rape, it calls it adultery. Does it not? Which is two completely different ideas. Even there it goes to show how deep, how deep we are still um, trying to save the images of our heroes, trying to um, wrestle with sin and our sinful nature. But it's clear from the Hebrew author, he wants you to know that David took Bathsheba without Bathsheba's consent. Solomon, his son, Solomon was a womanizer. Peter, Peter denied Jesus three times, cursed him. Paul, who's the first church planter, if he didn't kill Christians, we at least know that he was okay. He consented to the killing of Christians before he became one. Now, why do I point out these examples, these anti-heroes? Well, because I want to show you that in, in contradistinction to other ancient religious accounts, the characters in the Judeo-Christian stories are honestly portrayed, almost too honest sometimes. We wish we didn't know everything about these people, but they're very honest. Now, why is that important? It's important because this affects how we read the Bible. This affects what the Bible is about. Is the Bible about preserving the image of its heroes? No. Fundamentally, this story from Genesis to Revelation is about telling the truth of the world and the people in this world. And the truth it's trying to tell is that every single human in and of themselves is not enough. Now, I, it's, it's, you might be sitting here thinking, no, I would never do some of those things. Well, we are guilty by association. We are part of a race that not even 100 years ago exterminated six million Jews. We're guilty by association. We're all complicit in this. The, the story the gospel is telling is that every single human in and of themselves is not enough. That social systems, systems both political, economic, social, relational, are deeply broken. Therefore, power is abused and people are manipulated and exploited and bodies are taken and done with as the powerful please. That's the history of the world. And the Bible is telling it very honestly very openly. The truth is that the world has predominantly always been a patriarchal place. That's the truth. So you ask, well, how can you be a Christian and a feminist? Because the stories that we're reading are based in a patriarchal context. It all depends on what the story is meant to do. Is God giving us the Bible? And I know there might be difference, uh, differences of opinion here and it requires further discernment, but fundamentally, is God giving us the Bible and saying, all right, take, read, and apply these timeless truths to your life, I'm out? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think what the Bible is doing is telling the honest story through the histories of Israel, through Jesus of Nazareth, through the church of his first followers, which details the millennia-long struggles and fundamentally broken nature of humanity, the rebellion of a portion of the heavenly host 
who wreck havoc and bring death into the world, and a good and humble God's pursuit of his beloved creation so as to liberate, redeem, and restore. You're not supposed to finish this story and say, okay, I need to go and do this in my life. You're supposed to finish this story and say, who in the world is this God? Who in the world is this God? This story from Genesis to Revelation is not about you or me, or if it is, it's secondarily about us. You're supposed to finish this and say, this God is so good, why have I never heard of this God before? It's just telling the truth about the world. The world's always been a broken place. The world's always been a patriarchal place. The world's always been abused by power. But God's doing something about it. But he's just being very honest in the telling of it. See, you learn something about humanity secondarily because the Bible is not primarily for you to take, read, and apply and say, all right, I got this, God, thanks. Thank you for this, I got it, I can do it by myself now. No, you're supposed to finish the story, set the book down and say, who are you? Because whoever this God is, I want more of. Because I realize how much I don't know. I realize how blind I am. I realize how bloody my hands are. This story is meant to send us into the arms of this God. Now you might be thinking, well, what about the Mosaic laws then that sometimes group women with property? Um, For those of you who don't know, the Mosaic laws were the laws of the Old Testament. Um, Laws is kind of a misnomer. It's it's more of a a philosophy, a way of life. So um, God, through Moses, gave his people Israel a way of life uh, that would set them apart from all the other nations around them. And some of them seem pretty harsh. Some of them group women with property. Some of them are much harsher on women's sexuality than on men's. Some seem to accept that women are living in a man's world. Well, what do we do with those? Well, I would say two things to that. First, as one scholar points out, Mosaic law of a couple thousand years ago treats women better. That is to say, women within Mosaic law hold greater power and respect and value than American civil law did but 100 years ago. So who's ahead of their times? Is the first thing I would suggest. But the second thing, and and in order to to answer that question, I wanna use a story from Jesus' time. Um, So it goes like this, it reads like this. This is in the middle of Jesus' ministry. Some Pharisees, some experts in the law, they approach him and they say this. And some Pharisees came to him, tempting him, and saying, is it lawful for, for a man, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And this is the key part. So they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So what's going on here? Well, essentially, 
God gave this law to Moses that permitted divorce for, you know, extreme situations. And then Jesus comes along, who is the law incarnate, who is God in flesh. And the Pharisees say, well, why did, why did God allow us to divorce? And he says, it's because your hearts are hard. But in the beginning, it wasn't supposed to be this way. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, this wasn't God's original intention. He's kind of compromising. He's making a concession. It's not gonna end up this way, but he's making a concession for now because if he gave you the full measure of his truth, he would break you. The story is incomplete, says Jesus. He'll get there, it just takes time. I remember I was, um, I was meeting with a guy um, who was a recovering addict and he had had a really tough life, really tough life, but he wanted to be baptized. He um, had started coming to church and one day he had an encounter with Jesus. And so he came up, came up to me, he's like, Russ, I wanna be baptized. I was like, I am so happy. Um, so we met for a baptism class and we started talking about what baptism meant and uh, what it symbolizes. And there was this moment where I was trying to relate with him and uh, talking about you know, how you know, porn is this bad thing and I had struggled with it throughout high school. And he looks at me like I just stepped on his puppy. And he goes, wait, porn's bad for you? And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, what happened? This guy had an encounter with the living God. The living God just rained love and grace upon him, so much so that he yielded. He's like, whoever this God is, I don't understand him fully, but I want this Jesus. But this God hadn't given him the full truth yet of who he was. He hadn't revealed to him yet. He hadn't convicted his heart that, hey, porn's not gonna lead you in the right way. He will, but he just hadn't at first. Do you sort of see what's going on here? It's as if God is saying, look, we're on a journey together. There's a journey happening, and there are things happening in the world that I'm not necessarily okay with, but for the sake of completing the journey, for the sake of not breaking you on the, along the way, because you still have free will, and at every moment you can decide to remain in the story or to back out of his people. For that sense, he's making concessions. God's not sentimental. His love is harsh and exacting, but he's patient and he sees the long range. So perhaps, again, Mosaic law was still a, a, a afforded women greater value than American civil law, but 100 years ago. But perhaps some of those things that still that sound harsh in our ears um, are concessions for a period of time. So then if that's the case, then where's the story headed? Where's the story going? What's the long range vision of God? And I wanna briefly go through the main contours of this story. Now, anyone familiar, anyone who's been a Christian for a period of time, um, they would recognize there's, there's an inter-scriptural debate between what's called complementarianism and egalitarianism. And if you were here last week, you already know what Hope Brooklyn is. Um, but, what I would say is this. I don't wanna get bogged down in that conversation, though I'm very willing to have it and would love to. What I wanna say is this, though. Many times this conversation is had um, in examples which are still um, expressing forms of subjugation and forms of oppression. 
I would say, and for those who are unfamiliar with those words, complementarianism, uh, they're both describing what are the roles of the marriage relationship and what are the roles of men and women in the church. And you have scriptures that would seem, uh, complementarians say that men and women are intrinsically equal, but they have complementing roles in the church. Um, and the male is the head of the marriage. Egalitarians say that they are intrinsically equal with equal in the roles in the church and equal roles in marriage. Now here's what I would say. Many times this conversation is had uh, from an example that is not avoiding power trips. Show me an example of a marriage or a church which is fully living into the vision that every human should be submitting themselves to one another Every uh, husband is sacrificing their best interests for their wives. Show me that, and I guarantee you, we're not gonna be able to tell if they're complementarian or egalitarian. It's gonna look great. <laughs> and be like, whatever that marriage is, I want that. And so this conversation won't even be necessary. But I wanna go through the basic contours of this story um, as to answer the question of how can you be a Christian and a feminist with the Bible root in the patriarchal world? Because I think the, the scriptural story answers that question. And it starts at the very beginning. It starts at Genesis 2, at a passage that Anna read last week. And she said this, or she didn't say, she read, the Bible said this. <laughs> the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a help meet for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, for the man, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused uh, the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now in the book of Genesis, there are two creation accounts. They sort of tell the same story. The first one, God creates humankind. He creates, uh, we, we assume, man and woman at the same time. In the second one, he creates man first, and then he creates Eve, the woman, from the man's rib. And that's the history of debate um, has come from this passage, starts here at least, and from one key word, which Anna briefly talked about last week, the Ezer Konegdo, the Ezer Konegdo. So when it says in the passage at the very beginning, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a help meet for him, a helper for him. That phrase in Hebrew is Ezer Konegdo. And it's a really interesting phrase, and it's tough to translate. So the first thing is the ezer. Ezer means helper, but it has a connotation when it's used as a rescuing help, a strong help, a powerful help, even a, a savior type help. God is called the ezer of Israel many times. So Ezra means helper. So I point that out because it doesn't have the connotation of a, a submissive help, a servant help. It's not a helper as in a servant. It's a helper as in a savior, which is important to keep in mind. And then connecto. 
And connecto is a devilishly tricky word because um, it's a compound word made up of three parts of speech. Ka, which can mean like or as or according to. Neged, which can mean in front of or in sight of. And O, which means him. So essentially, what we're being told by the Hebrew author is that God made a strong help like in front of him, as to the sight of him. And the other thing that's tricky is neged is not used again in the entire Old Testament. So we're like, whew, where do we go with this? Because essentially what's, what's happening is that either Eve, either the woman, is a strong help like Adam, or the woman is a, a, strong, uh, a strong help um, serving Adam, is, is the two options, that the history of Christian interpretation. What I think is fascinating about that phrase, neged, is that though it's not used in the Old Testament again, it is used in rabbinical writings. And what, what I mean by that is, you know how we have the Bible, but we also have these books that are written by Christians that are like interpretations of scripture and are commentaries. Those would be like rabbinical writings. And neged is used in rabbinical writings. And when it's used there, it's used with the sense of things that are like one another, things that are similar to one another. Which is why I think the, the interpretation should be that God made for Adam a strong helper corresponding to him. A strong helper of the same substance, of the same nature. Or as one scholar says, what God had intended then was to make a power or a strength, an ezer, for the man who would in every way correspond to him and be his equal. Or another scholar, God says that the lonely ha-adam, the lonely man, needs a source of strength on the same level face-to-face, not a housemaid. And I think that's further confirmed because in between God's decision to make Eve and God's action to do it is a list of all the creatures that have corresponding helpers. And then when Eve is created, the man looks at her and goes, finally, here is one like me. There wasn't one like me. This is one that's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And for this reason, the man leaves his father and mother and unites to his wife. So I think what's going on is kind of, Anna had this phrase last week. God created the woman to tend the garden with the man together, to be equals in the task that he had given humans. Not to be in front or behind, but to be side by side, doing the same work. That was the intention at the beginning. And then fast forward two chapters to Genesis 3. And we get to uh, where men and women, they fall. They, they attempt, um, they choose to try to live their life to exist outside of God's presence. And so begins the history of the curses on the earth um, and the history of brokenness and evil that we find ourselves in. And in the middle of the curse, God says this, of the list of curses, he says this. And he goes, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And in that, in that Hebrew, there's no ambiguity. We know all those words, they're used constantly. It seems pretty clear that the history of patriarchy, which infiltrated by sin results in misogyny, is a result of the fall. 
It's an implication of the fall. It was not meant from the beginning. Men and women were to have been equal side by side doing the same work, combating each other's loneliness together, joining together. Um, Misogyny is an implication of the fall. And so then so begins from that point, thousands of years of work. God choosing Israel, God working through Israel, God coming in the form of Jesus. Jesus who is the firstborn of the new creation. The firstborn of the new creation. Paul even calls him the second Adam. So if you think about it um, linearly, it's kind of like creation, they dip in this fall and they come back up here and now it's new creation. All right, so Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. In a sense, what is called is he reverses the curse. He reverses the curse. And so we have in Acts 2, after he resurrects and ascends, there's a group of his followers, men and women, in the upper room, and he pours out his spirit on them. And the spirit of Jesus pours out on the followers. And they all start speaking in different tongues, different languages, and people in Israel are like, whoa, what is happening right now? Um, And then Peter, who's like the spokesperson for the disciples, he explains what's going on, and this is what he says. He goes, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Men and women are given the fullness of the spirit again in the new creation. There's a return to Eden, so to speak. There's a return to the days where they are not infiltrated by by misogyny any longer, where they are equals doing the work of the new creation. Lost my page, there we go. And then fast forward a little bit and we get to Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. And Paul writes this, he goes, now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He's not abolishing these categories. There's still different nationalities. There's still um, different economic situations. There's still masculinity and femininity. But he's saying that the law served a purpose, but there's been a return to the time where there is no curse. The systems corrupted by power struggles are done. And he names these systems, Jew and Greek, those are national systems. Slave or free, economic systems. Male and female, relational systems. They're no longer corrupted by power. For all are one, that is to say all are equal in the Messiah, who's the firstborn of the new creation. The Greek word arche, like patriarchy, arche, means first. In a sense, what Paul is saying is there's no firstness anymore. Y'all are equal. He's saying to the Jews, look, Jews, you're not first anymore. Y'all are equal. Jews and Gentiles are in the same family together. Arche is abolished. And that seems to be the contour of the story. Now, obviously, there are passages that require discernment. Ephesians 5 talks about um, marital relations. And it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife. But before it gets into this list of relations, it has this verb, hupatasamenoi. And in the Greek, uh, it's 
they do this crazy thing where they can put the verb at the start of a sentence and they use no more verbs for the rest of the passage. And what they want you to know is that that verb is applies to every single instance. And hupatasamanoi means to submit yourselves to one another. So Paul starts by saying, submit yourselves to one another out of love of Christ. And then he goes on to discuss what that would look like. In 1 Corinthians 14, talking about the relations, the roles of men and women in worship. Um, For those who are familiar with that, there's also 1 Corinthians 11. And 1 Corinthians 11 seems to say something that if it doesn't contradict 1 Corinthians 14, at least uh, it doesn't gel completely. So it requires discernment. It requires conversation. And then in 1 Timothy 2, I don't want to get into this one fully, but for, it talks about how um, Paul doesn't allow women to domineer men, to exercise tyrannical authority over men. And why that's fascinating is because he doesn't use the typical word exousia for authority. That's a very common word. Everyone knows what exousia is. He uses authentes. And authentes is only used one time in the New Testament. And it has this idea of being a tyrant, of abusing power. And the other thing that's fascinating about that letter, 1 Timothy, is that it's sent to a church in Ephesus that's combating a deadly heresy called Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, they held up Eve. They were really obsessed with Eve. All that to say, I know that doesn't do any justice to anyone who doesn't know those passages. That was more at people who do know those passages. It is to say it's complex. And it is to say that to follow the contour of the story of the Ezra Konegdo, of what God originally intended, of the way women are held up in scripture through, um, through people like Deborah, who was a ruler of Israel for 40 years. And when we get to the New Testament with Jesus and the pouring out of the spirit saying, your sons and daughters will prophesy together. And then if you look at the, the first church in Roman society, some of these things I've said before, but they're worth noting again on a day like today. So if you look at the first church in Roman society, to be a woman in Rome was only to be a wife and a mother. That was the only role you had in Rome. But yet you see in 1 Corinthians, when uh, a woman becomes a widow, when her husband dies, what does Paul counsel her? He says to the widows, I counsel you to stay a widow. To the single, men and women, I counsel you to stay single. That's radical, guys. Paul is saying to the women that you have other options of serving the Lord in your life than just being confined to uh, a mother and, and, a, and a wife. In 1 Corinthians 7, um, and I've said this before, the, the Greco-Roman sexual ethic at the time was if you were a man, you could have sex with basically anyone you wanted, but the woman could only have sex with her husband. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, wife, your body belongs to your husband, which everyone would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. But then he goes, and husband, your body belongs to your wife. It's not your own. He creates equality, sexual equality. So you're not allowed to do whatever you want. That was radical. I briefly touched on 1 Corinthians 14, and there's debate within the church in Corinth of the roles of men and women in the church and whether women should wear head coverings or not. But we miss, when we just focus on that debate, the scandal was that women were allowed to participate in worship, which they hadn't been allowed to do previous. They were allowed to prophesy and exhort and teach, which was radical for that time. And then finally, women were allowed to divorce men, 
which was not allowed in that context, in that culture. So it all seems to point to this idea that at the beginning, men and women were created to be equal gardeners, equal ezer connectos for one another, to do the work together, to be full participants, full of value, full of worth, full of quality, full indwelling of the spirit to serve the Lord together. And I wanna end with one last uh, passage, and it's one that you probably hear on Mother's Day a lot, Proverbs 31. And Proverbs, yeah, I see some smiles. Proverbs 31 um, starts off, a, a wife of noble character who can find. And I wanna end with this, because generally it's used to praise female uh, domesticity. And, and there's nothing wrong with that interpretation, just so you know, there's not. But it is narrow. And so I want to address it just real quickly. So the first line in this poem, so just so you know, if you're unfamiliar, Proverbs 31 is a poem about uh, this noble wife, this noble woman, and it ends the book of Proverbs. But the phrase, the first line of this poem is ashet chayil, ashet chayil. And ashet can mean wife, that's fair, but it can also be a broader term to mean woman. And chayil, interestingly enough, um, doesn't necessarily mean capable, though it can, but it means power. It means valor. It means courage. So in a sense, what, what the author is saying is a woman of power, a woman of courage, a woman of valor, who can find. And then through the poem, he goes on to tell you what that looks like. And among the things that make this woman valorous, is her work, um, is her care for her husband and her family and her town. Uh, she buys a field and she loans it out. She's a female entrepreneur. She speaks with wisdom and children and men listen to her and call her blessed. My mom always liked to bring that up to us as children. Why don't you wake up and call me blessed? She was right. But this, this woman of power, this woman of valor, now why that's fascinating, the Eshet Chayil, because that phrase is used only one other time in the entire Old Testament. And I think it says up there, the book of Ruth. Ruth is called an Eshet Chayil. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, Ruth is not even an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She marries into the family. And when her husband dies, she becomes a widow. Her mother-in-law dismisses her and says, go back to your family and your clan. And she says, no, I'm staying with you. She shows tremendous loyalty to her mother-in-law. And then uh, she ends up going and working the fields. So after all the fields were gleaned, she would pick up scraps. She'd work long hours. And Boaz, who owns the field, he takes notice of this woman who's working her tail off to support her mother-in-law. She's not even Jewish. And he calls her an Ashet Chayil, this valorous woman before they get married or have kids. Now, the other thing that's fascinating is that Proverbs is 31 chapters long, and at the very end of the book is this poem, the Ashet Kayil. And in the Hebrew Bible, not the Christian Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, when Proverbs ends, guess what book begins? Ruth. So in a sense, the author's saying, look at the Ashet Kayil who exemplifies wisdom, and now let me show you a historical example of it, which just causes you to pause. 
And then finally, the other note about Proverbs 31, as I already said, it's the very end of the book. And this book, presumably, was written by a man, and it was written for his son, or young men. And he's trying to train up these young Jewish men of what it means to be uh, a man of wisdom. And the book is dedicated to wisdom. Gain wisdom. The author implores his son. Gain wisdom. And it's fascinating that for a book directed toward male readers in a patriarchal people, the author ends his book talking about gaining wisdom by pointing to an exemplar saying, and you want to see the perfect example of wisdom? Look at the Ashat Chayil. Look at the woman of valor. For a patriarchal people to end a book of wisdom directing the male reader's attention to a woman as the exemplar is radical to say the least. Which is why we end where we began, with the mothers. I don't know if this was your case, but it was definitely mine. I have two brothers and a dad. Um, We are historically Irish, so we are a passionate people. Um, And I grew up idolizing my dad for good reasons. My dad was a good man. Um, He was the face of the family. He would leave every day to go to work, and we never understood, but he'd go conquer towns and fight dragons and come back with ice cream. Um, He was charismatic. He was gregarious. I idolized him. Like, it was easy to idolize. He was strong. He was the fighter. He was the provider. But then, as I said earlier, you get older, you get to know people better, um, You get to know yourself better. You know the world. You get to know God better. And it realized, as I learned about Jesus more, one day it switched. And the true Christ-like leader had always been my mom. Always. The courage my mom, I can't tell you how many arguments happened around our dinner table between my dad and my brothers. And my mom's just sitting there poised, just watching, holding this family together. Whether she wanted to be a mom or not, she accepted her her role, her call. Um, The selflessness and the beauty and the sacrifice that she displayed toward us um, is a woman of valor. Now here's why I bring that up. Because I think there's a secret of the gospel, right? Remember how I said earlier that um, that when Jesus was asked, why did they allow why did Moses allow people to sign a certificate of divorce? He says, cause your hearts of hard, but it wasn't meant to be that way in the beginning. God made a concession. God made a compromise. But that's not the full truth. Now this is me imagining. This is not scriptural, but it's me imagining. And I don't think it's totally faithless or groundless. When Jesus showed up, um, he did something really radical. He started telling Jews, when you address God, call him Father, which is true. That's something they hadn't done before. God was almighty, God was strong, God was distant, but to be so personal, related, Jesus like, yeah, that's who God is. God is a good Father, and he is. But we know that God is not male, God is God. Both genders, both male and female, come from God, and both are the fullness 
of the image of God. And I wonder, I wonder that if this was just another example of of Jesus making it easy on people because of our hardness of heart. Because in a patriarchal people, it's easier to get on board with worshiping a God who's father. But at least it wasn't my case. The more I learned about this God, the more I related with God, that God's heart is really the heart of a mother, full of tenderness and compassion and fire and beauty. The core of God, perhaps, might not be male, but female. And so to the women of valor in the room who teach us what God is like, we honor you today. Will you pray with me? We do call you Father today because Jesus told us to call you Father. But we recognize, God, that you are the creator and that men and women both fully represent your likeness. We recognize that that we are sinful and that where power gets involved, we exploit people and we manipulate and we get our way. And we don't wanna do that, Lord. We wanna submit to one another equally. We wanna serve one another equally. We wanna love one another equally. Would you create in Hope Brooklyn an image of those type of relationships? Would you create in us your likeness, a heart of both a father and a mother. We confess we don't even know what that means. But we want to learn. We're open. And so Jesus, you have full permission to work in us to accomplish your will in this community, to minister to us and to shape us and to teach us what God is really like. And we know, Lord, that you're really, really good and merciful and sacrificial. And we wanna grow into your likeness. Thank you for the women of valor, the women of courage, who exhibit courage that many times goes unnoticed or unrecognized. May this community community not be a place that allows that type of courage and valor and power to go unnoticed or unrecognized. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your story. Plant it deep into our hearts and awaken us to your truth. And it's in your resurrected name we pray. Amen.